0: Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. In these two Psalms, we have a picture of what it means to live in the world in which we live, and I want us to focus on clashing with the culture. Psalm 14 describes a person who has no regard for God and responds in disbelief to God. Psalm 15 talks about a person who desires to live in the presence of God in an intimate way. And so there between those two chapters, there's a clashing with the culture. Beginning in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, neighbor nor does he take a, up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray together. Father, even this morning as we've contemplated worship in this place. We have focused on light and darkness. Father, we, we recognize a, a physical difference and challenge between those two. But Father, today as we look at your word, I, I pray you would give us a, a fine-tuned perspective from your word on the clashing of light and darkness in this world. So Father, I thank you for the the heart of the psalmist and, and for his desire to connect with you and to receive from you words that would be written down that we might receive from those words by you today. And so Father, it's my prayer that you would speak to us from your holy word. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you been reminded lately of an aggressive immorality around you? Uh, Just... Uh, the shameful things being brought into the light and being somewhat acceptable to the masses, it seems. And it can be overwhelming when that immorality ramps itself up like that, but the, re- the reality is that the majority of our culture is not immoral, they are amoral. There is no sense of morality. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And so as the psalmist wrote here, uh, there are basically two groups of people in the world. We could divide them in so many different other categories, but the scripture brings it down to just two, those who are ungodly and those who are godly. So if you felt uncomfortable with the condition of the culture around you, that could be a strong sign that you are in the category of those who belong to God. It should make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, We should never feel comfy with the culture. But if you're going to live for Christ, the Scripture makes it clear that, that you're going to have a clashing with the culture. It's going to happen on many levels and at various times and sometimes at surprising moments. But there will be a clashing with the culture. So I want us to take these two Psalms and look at them as a, a vivid picture of that clashing of cultures. You read Psalm 14, and it's, it's heavy, it's dismal, and it's dark. Then you turn to Psalm 15, and it, it is bright with truth. There's like a hunger for holiness that springs in our hearts to be in the presence of God and to know Him and to walk with Him. Now, in chapter 15, there is a listing of what a godly person does. That is not an exhaustive list. There are a variety of lists like that that you find in the Old Testament where they're describing what one does and how he or she lives in light of their faith. And God and their walk with him. But these are exemplary items that give us a picture of the heart and the habits of a person who desires to know God and to be with him. So let's enter into these two chapters today. And first of all, I want you to notice colliding beliefs. The reason for the clashing with culture is a a colliding of beliefs. One way the culture tries to soften that is they will say things like, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. As if everyone gets to pick and choose what they believe and what they consider fact and true. But the scripture, makes it clear there is a clear distinction between that which is true and that which is false. Notice the beginning of chapter 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Just think about the slamming of the door there the expression of pain and disillusionment. There is no God. Uh, the picture there, as it goes deeper than just words on the tongue, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the foundation of a culture that feels no accountability, no desire to... Uh, be godly, it it has shut the door on all of that. There is no God, and if there is, it's me, is what the culture would say, either directly or indirectly. But notice chapter 15. It begins clearly with the word Lord. Even the speaking of that title for God, Lord, in the highest sense that that title of Yahweh the God above all even in the stating of that there's an expression of the opposite of the beginning of chapter 14 lord who may abide in your tabernacle who may dwell in your holy hill what he's saying is who can sojourn or visit your presence? Who can come into your presence and who can even approach the holy hill upon which you express your majestic presence? You see the big difference here? One is a slam door. There is no God. The other is the threshold of relationship through which the psalmist desires to enter. Not only is there a God, but there's a desire to know him. There's a sense that God has made it possible somehow to uh, approach his presence. And he's he's asking God, who can approach you and and how is that done? Because you are so otherworldly, you are beyond us and above us. One is stated with finality, the other is stated in a futuristic tense of of knowing him better and walking with him more clearly. You see the the colliding of beliefs here? Some people would say, "Does, does what you believe really, really matter? The Bible says, yes, it does. Let's say that someone says, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Okay, it's their right to believe that. What if they climb on this roof and jump off? Well, if they survive, that will change their belief system, won't it? It should. What you believe matters. If you believe wrongly, it can be detrimental to you. If you bring, bring it, believe rightly, it brings great blessing into your life. What we believe does matter, but the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, do you think God quivers and shakes when he hears someone say that in their heart or with their lips? No, that statement is not a reflection on God. The Word of God says that's a reflection on the person who speaks it. So if you're dealing with someone who doesn't believe in God, there is a nickname given to them in Scripture, and that nickname is fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. How do you deal with someone with that foolish idea that there is no God? Well, through Proverbs, you read multiple places how to interact with a fool or how to refuse to interact with a fool. It's a reflection on the person, not upon God. In reality, based upon the Scripture, it would be just as clear to say I am a fool. As it is to say, there is no god. It's very similar to the words you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. The apostle Paul there is describing the necessity of the cross for salvation. And he makes this statement under the inspiration of God, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So if someone speaks negatively, or rejects the message of the cross and the substitutionary death of Christ on their behalf, and they say that's foolishness, that's not a reflection on the cross. That's a reflection on the heart. Those who, accept, who reject God and the things of God fall into a category of great foolishness. Contrasted in those two psalms that we're looking at today, 14 and 15, with 15 that points to the wisdom of one who desires to move toward God and to know God. So in that clashing of, with culture, there is a colliding of belief systems. Uh, how did it all begin? Where did it all start? why am I here, those essential questions that the Scripture answers, to reject those is to be foolish, to accept those is to be wise. Now, why would these beliefs be so important while well, our beliefs produce behavior? So, not only is there a colliding of beliefs, there conflicting behavior. If you look back at Psalm 14, notice the behavior that moves out of the unbelief and the disbelief in God, beginning in verse 1, right after that statement is made, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. is that a, graphic picture of those who don't believe in God. It says in verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up the people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. The very one they denounce The very one they deny resides with the generation of the righteous, and it creates great fear among the ungodly. Contrast that with the descriptions given in Psalm 15. Speaking of who may abide in his presence and who may dwell on his holy hill, he who has a walk that is upright and works righteousness, And speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take a a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now, rather than going through and expounding on all of those things, I want us to keep the big picture in mind today. There's such a drastic difference between these two psalms. One is is turned inward, full of corruption and ungodliness, eating away at his very existence. The other is turned upward and outward, Expressing a life of goodness and godliness to those around him. And so in the picture of the culture, there's this conflicting behavior. There are those who, if God says yes, they say no. God says no, they say yes. But here the picture in Psalm 15 is... They say yes to what God says yes to. They say no to what God says no to. So what is the basic contrast here? It's a contrast between a life of godlessness and a life of godliness. So I ask you this morning, how's your belief shaping your behavior Is your belief system based upon the Word of God? And and if you truly believe the Word of God, is it shaping everything about you? Is it changing and shaping your behavior? Now, where does all of this difference begin? It begins in the heart. The fool has said in his heart... There is no God. The wise, godly person, it says, speaks truth in his heart. Truth that begins with the existence of God, the the truth of God, the purity of God, all of those great attributes of God, the speaking of truth in his heart, honest inside and out about who he is and who God is. It's such a contrast with the other psalm. So how is your belief shaping your behavior? Let me ask it this way. Did you find yourself this week having to say no to something the culture said yes to? Or did you find yourself having to say yes to something the culture would say no to? It's not all about what we don't do. It's about What we do in obedience to God, isn't it? So there's that colliding of beliefs, conflict in behavior that distinguishes us from the world. But if we're not careful, we begin to cater to the culture, we begin to conform to the culture. We try to live between Psalm 14 and 15. It becomes a big blur of who we are anyway. But the Scripture says that God has set us apart. The theological term for that is He has consecrated us. Uh, That simply means He has set us apart as His people for holy purposes. He has consecrated us. That's part of salvation is when we are justified by God, we are consecrated by him and, and set aside by him for his purposes and for his will. But the reality is that consecration brings confrontation. If you walk In the ways of God, you will come face to face with the culture, won't you? You'll be confronted by the culture, and your life will confront the lifestyle of the culture. What does one do when that happens? How do you respond in that moment? The greatest need is a Christ-like response. So how am I to take it when my consecration brings on a confrontation? How how should that work on me? Well, Jesus said, if you are consecrated to him and you are confronted by the culture, that's confirmation you belong to him. You find words that may seem strange to people who are not attentive to the word and the ways of God in Matthew chapter 5. It's in the context of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been pronouncing what are the beatitudes, the blessings that come into the life of those who are living by the precepts of the word of God. There in verse 10, the climactic, blessed are those, takes a turn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not saying that you are granted the kingdom of heaven if you are persecuted. It's saying, if you are persecuted, that is a, an indication that you have been granted the kingdom of God. Then it goes on in verse 11, "Blessed or blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, there's some clarifying here in these two verses. It says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not because you were being a jerk, but because you were living a righteous life and you are living for the righteousness of God. Then in verse 11, there's a clarifying statement here. When people say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, misrepresenting you, slandering you, trying to destroy your character in people's minds, he says if they're doing that for my sake, because of the way you've lived for me, uh, there is a blessing to be found in that. He goes so far to say in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The thing about the last time you were confronted by the culture was rejoicing and being exceedingly glad your first thought? Probably not. Mine either. But Jesus says, if you really want to know that you belong to him, you will discover that when you are confronted by those who don't belong to him. And he says, in that moment, you can rejoice and be exceedingly glad because that puts you in the company of the prophets and others who have gone before you and faced that same level of, persecution. Scripture seems to be saying and is clearly saying that persecution is not to be avoided, it's to be expected. I have a friend who was in a nation that is hostile to Christianity. They were sharing their testimony and he was amazed at what they were willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, after he heard these testimonies, he asked them the question, "Is it hard to live where you're living?" And they said, "What do you mean?" and he said well you're you're being persecuted because you're a christian as is that hard? And they said, well, no. And he said, why is that not hard? And they said, is this not the way it's supposed to be? And it caught my friend off guard because they had come to understand from Scripture if you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to cut across the grain of the culture. You're going to swim upstream, so to speak, and there will be misunderstanding misrepresentation slander etc on the cause of christ and because of his sake in your life that's to be expected it was almost as if they were shocked that he would ask that because that's the sign that they belong to jesus my we have become very comfortable and casual in the things of god haven't we Because not just my friend would be wondering that, I would, and perhaps you would as well. But then notice what Jesus goes on to say. After he said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled on the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He was using an image they were very familiar with. They had small lanterns. In most of the common homes, it would be very simple. It would be a a vessel that that held oil, and then there would be what we would call a a wick coming out of it, and they would light that, and as it was soaked, it would put off light. Uh, By the way, it would probably be not even as good of lighting as we have in here in a small room. And when they lit that, he's saying they wouldn't take that light and put it under a basket. People would have laughed at that because they, they might set it there on the floor and, or on the table and, and put it on top of a basket so that it could give off light. He was saying, you don't light a lantern to hide it, you light a lantern to let its light do what light is intended to do. Then he takes that image and he applies it to us as believers. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the context, he's saying if you're persecuted, don't flee for cover, but even in that context, let your light shine. It can't be hidden. If you belong to Christ, you can't hide it. It's in your countenance. It's in your conversation. It's in your conduct. It's everything about you is marked by him. Just just let it shine. Let it be put on display. And the, the more it's persecuted and the more they attempt to dim that light, the greater and the brighter it seems to shine. So, if you take that image of Jesus and you bring it back into the two Psalms here, it's quite a picture. Psalm 14 says, there is no one good, there is none who does righteousness, there's none that seeks God, there's none who cries out to God and calls upon Him. It's a dismal, dark place, but then you get to chapter 15 and it describes the beauty of a life that that lets a light come shining forth by that good behavior and that godly lifestyle. And there's a blessing promised at the end of that psalm. He who does these things shall never be moved or shaken. What a picture that is. So let me ask you a question today. Everybody in this room is living in one of those two psalms. You might say, well, I, I would never say there is no God. You might not say it, but you might live as if there is no God. You might reject Christ by not turning to him, and you might say, well, well, I, I wouldn't dare say that I reject him. Well, if you haven't come to know him and you haven't embraced him as Lord, then then practically you are rejecting him and you're living in psalm 14 where there is no help and no hope but if your life belongs to christ and you have sought to ascend that holy hill that only christ can make possible through his sacrifice and you are living by the teaching of the word of god and and it becomes evident by your lifestyle that your heart belongs to him then you are Dwelling in Psalm 15. Some might say, well, I kind of have one foot in 14 and one foot in 15. You can't live that way. You're either all in or all out. So how do you make that transition? How do you move from a life described in Psalm 14 to a life described in Psalm 15. The only way is to transition through faith in Christ. There's another picture of the ungodly. Even us who know Christ before we came to know him in Romans chapter 3. It, it seems to echo some of the phrasing and the imaging Of Psalm 14 begins with the question what then are we better than they are we better than the unrighteous not at all he says in verse 9 of Romans 3 for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin as it is written There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes very similar picture to Romans 14 let's pick up reading there in Romans i mean in Psalm 14 Romans 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, apart from Christ, there is none righteous. No, not one. Apart from the transformational power of Christ, there is no propensity toward good or righteousness there we always default to that which is wrong and that which is sinful but but in christ we have freely been saved by his righteousness and by his death for us and it's in that that we are transformed into a new life and we are given the freedom to pursue the presence of god and to seek his will and to do what pleases him So you might say, well, I'm not righteous. I I need to improve my life before I come to Christ. You can't improve your life. That's why Christ came. That's why he died on our behalf as the sacrifice for our sin. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But once he transforms you by his grace you become a citizen of heaven and you begin to clash with the culture because there is a conflict with beliefs. There is a conflicting of behavior but our eternal destiny is secure because the world doesn't have the final say in our life. Jesus does. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time... May God's blessings be upon you.